Contact here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shields up. Signatures detected. Context Starfleet Command. What's happening? Context Starfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Starfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Starfleet Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to the greatest discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation, which is another Star Trek podcast that we're a little bit embarrassed to have. <laughs> I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Ben, I read that today's episode is three from the end of the second half of the first season, episode 13. Yeah. Uh, there's only... There's only two more. Yeah. And this is sort of the part of a television season when... You start seeing things closed up, right? Yeah. The, uh, you know, characters' arcs are coming to an end, as are their lives. <laughs> <laughs> We're running out of time to kill people. <laughs> it's a good thing we have this Mr. Burns-like trapdoor. We can just take a, <laughs> a piece of earth-moving equipment and just yeah. shove them in. I had to rub my eyes and look around for a bit because I was like, are we watching an episode of Discovery or a James Bond film? <laughs> I mean, I love the uh, I love the reveal of the trap, the unused trapdoor, mm-hmm. mind you. Yeah. Like, like, we're not going to see that again. <laughs> Chekhov's trapdoor. Yeah, every reveal is so pregnant on this show. <laughs> yeah. I think that brings up another point that we could talk about abstractly before maybe we get into the episode itself is like there seems to be a a, a little bit of ham on this show like like more ham than an increasing amount of ham I should say as the season goes on like these are very transparent plays into the future like the the camera is focusing on things that are used later and blown up later in a way that a lot of other shows, modern shows particularly, are a little more subtle about. And I wonder if that's like the CBS DNA, right? Like, do you feel like that's that CBS low and lowest common denominator working here? I don't know. I thought that uh, I thought it was especially hammy when I mean, spoiler alert, but uh, someone goes through that trap door. <laughs> I regret nothing. Uh-huh. Uh, toward the end of the episode and then the camera cuts to salacious crumb laughing at him <laughs> you see uh, you see those throwing stars in the palace and and you're like god are we ever going to see any more of those throwing stars again that was the only pregnancy that doesn't go full term as far as <laughs> as far as what we see in this episode yeah there were some some shuriken continuity issues also yeah. like there's like sometimes when they're there on the pedestals and other times when they're not where do they go? Like, maybe you need to put them on a charging station, right? Yeah, maybe uh, maybe Giorgio took them back to her quarters to plug the lightning cable into them. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, well, do you want to get into the episode, Adam? Yeah, there's so much to talk about in uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 1, Episode 13. What's past is prologue. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons? Klingons? Those Klingons? This episode starts in Agonizer Booth Stadium, and uh, Lorca is uh, taking all of his buddies off of uh, agony support, <laughs> uh, letting them letting them step out of the uh, phone booths. And um, after like a year and a half, almost yeah. two years, what is that like? A long time to be in agony. Um, 
I suppose I can relate. Uh, <laughs> and and like this is all people that have been on the Charon, uh, and and that seemed like maybe like a a bit of a tactical error on the part of the empire. Like maybe don't keep a huge stock of people that hate you, like on ice in the ship for somebody to thaw out later. Yeah, I mean, uh, keep your friends close and 200 of your enemies inside your ship. Is that the saying goes, <laughs> it, I guess? Yeah, yeah. We get to see uh, Landry again. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Agonizer booth has done nothing to diminish her great hair and and beauty, I would say. Yeah. I would say that Landry as a character is the most similar from Prime Universe to Mirror Universe. We still have supporters on several worlds. She wouldn't have to try very hard to fit in on the other side, that's for sure. Yeah. So they head up to uh, Stamitz's office, and um, I think I think we've confirmed that this is Mirror Universe Stamets, right? Yes. I was proven wrong very early <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> Uh, after we were finished recording here, I will re-edit the last episode to remove <laughs> to, to erase to erase the history. Uh, a lot of people were on your side, man. If we re-edited every episode where we were wrong, all of our episodes would be three minutes long. <laughs> I'd say being being wrong is like our main thing, Adam. Maybe the most powerful feeling I've ever had is the idea that I that so many people shared my wrong opinion at the end of the last episode. <laughs> yeah, we go to uh, we go to a little exposition university here uh, with Mirror Universe Lorca telling us what happened. I like the uh, I like the the way they discover that Stamets is in the room. Right, they're like looking around, and all his you know weed cans are still here, <laughs> and. Uh, Lorca like detects like a little like glitch in the matrix and pulls Stamets out from behind uh, invisibility shield, which uh, I guess means that mirror universe uh, imperial humans have some cloaking technology at least on yeah. on this scale. One and, of the uh, subtle things about the mirror universe is their uh, is that they use first names when they address each other. Like yeah, just a little they're just a little just more a little casual. Bit of disrespect there. <laughs> it's like my. Uh, my elementary and middle school were very formal, and everybody was Mr. This and Mrs. That. And my high school, ta- you call your teacher by the first name. It was a real casual environment. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if I could get used to that. <laughs> that, was, that was not what it was like in my school. <laughs> it was cool. There was a real camaraderie between us and the teachers. We were all in it together. Me and Janet and Eugene. <laughs> <laughs> took took at least two years to get used to. It was kind of like being in an agonizer booth, right? There is like a ton of monologuing, like an an amount of villain monologuing about what happened to Lorca that I almost expected his plot to be foiled right then and there. Uh, you're not wrong because there are, I think, no fewer than four major monologues in the episode yeah. by main characters, and uh, and this is the first. Little bit of a, a flashback montage to how Lorca got there. I've uh, now that I live in LA, I've been thinking about going out on auditions, and uh, I've I've already begun preparing some of these monologues just uh, just in case, you know. Well, they won't pick up your garbage unless you go to an audition a month. <laughs> that's, that's one of the things about living in LA. Yeah, 
That's uh, <laughs> it's so fucked up how SAG controls the trash pickup. <laughs> it's like qualifying for unemployment. You got to prove that you've been to a certain number of job interviews. <laughs> so I guess you don't want to transport yourself during an ion storm. Mm-hmm. That's how you make two Rikers too, oh, right? Yeah. Ion storm accident. What if what if transporting Lorca through the ion storm just made another Riker? Like it was Riker specific. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I guess William and Thomas are both taken, so I'll just call myself Riker Riker. <laughs> Frakes directed the episode uh, a couple episodes ago, and he was like, so, like, I'm not going to be on both sides of the camera? I just sort of assumed. <laughs> I mean, I'm here, guys. I'm here. <laughs> it's quite different than what you see on television. The thing that they get Stamets to do is trigger some kind of uh, biological agent that kills the majority of the troops that Giorgio has stationed here on the Huron. They don't have the kind of uh, mixed feelings about rolling a bunch of nerve gas through the ship as they do on LV-426. <laughs> Evidently, the, the high do- dollar value of the, of the Caron is not enough of a deterrent for this plan of action. Yeah. <laughs> Mirror Universe Burke is just like super nice, just a really nice accountant. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, <laughs> he's got a full collar on his suit. It's not yeah. cut off at a weird place. <laughs> um, this is uh, an opportunity for Burnham to like affect an escape attempt. This this felt real Goldeneye to me, like Goldeneye in the facility. There was a couple of times when she like hit somebody in the chest and they would get electrocuted, and I couldn't really tell what that was. Was did she grab one of the shuriken or something? Wow, I didn't think so. I just thought she found herself another power glove. This is a real power glove rich environment, <laughs> I think. You just stick your hand out and it's in one. Yeah. I love the power glove. It's so bad. The baddest ass move that she pulls though is is like she like dodges a phaser bullet and it hits a a grate and she like runs for the grate and slides through the newly open grate complete with molten bars yeah you know? it is not super realistic to me that she would escape because she's like standing in the middle of a room full of people with guns I guess maybe they're they're being careful about shooting at her because the emperor is behind her. Maybe that's why she doesn't get taken out. But there's like, like this is a very action heavy episode. And I feel like the action directing is pretty top notch. Now, when you're constructing a flood rate <laughs> on the emperor's palace ship, you're going to want to use some bars that are two to three inches in, in diameter. <laughs> this imperial ship used to use a weight and pulley system to raise and lower the bars, but we've gone to a modern double-paned bar system. We're just going to shim it in place and then use a ten-penny ring-shank nail to hold it while we finish the fixtures on the outside. Ben, you're not wrong about these action scenes, and I would posit something else for you to consider. All of the action scenes in this episode uh, feel exactly like Star Wars. Hmm. And there are a couple of reasons why. Um, the bleeding brass instruments in the score, as uh, accompanied by like the giant dark reflective spaceship, uh, and in all of the battle scenes, there's these rows of anonymous soldiers. Uh, it feels like this is 
I mean, not just a Terran Empire ship, but like a Star Wars Empire ship that they're on. There was some sound design stuff about that, too. Like, I kept hearing things that sounded like TIE fighters in this episode. (laughs) Yeah. And the director of this episode does not stop moving the camera, ever. Like, it is always floating. It is always above. Really interesting compositions. Like, the thing that does not make it like a, a total Star Wars cop is that the compositions are fairly different from what you get in a Star Wars movie. It's a surprisingly heavy action episode. Like we were talking about how like this is the the Star Trek that's set against a war, but there have been so many episodes where it's like, you know, oh, we're jumping back in time over and over again and like while there's a little action in there, it's more a a puzzle that they're trying yeah. to solve. And this one is about like taking people out and and removing removing actors from the equation yeah boy pulse weapons sure feel like the future versus beam weapons you know like all of these all of these rifles and stuff feel like they they would be from a post next gen universe this is definitely something that was introduced by the jj abrams kelvin universe yeah i think that what it is is we are so used to warp feeling away and and phaser fire feeling away that when they added the kind of like impactful punchy sound design to everything it felt like really cool and new like i remember really being impressed when the enterprise first goes to warp in that first jj abrams star trek film and it's like yeah it it shoots like a bullet into space it was like a totally fresh take on that idea and like I, i'm sure that it like graded on some people as not feeling canonical but you know i think you have to keep up with the times yeah i mean different doesn't mean wrong or bad or non-canonical the alien universe has has really struggled with this as well like oh you know if we tell a story that happens before the events of alien like do we make the ship look even shittier and more analog like there's a great alien video game on PlayStation that's that's like super analog feeling and they put all these like, you know, glitched up VHS effects and stuff into the game and and all the computers look all like big and blocky and shitty the way they do in Alien. Yeah. And it is such a fun choice, but it you know, it also kind of like exposes it for what it is, which is an aesthetic choice that was like originally governed by the limitations of technology and imagination at the time that the franchise was invented. That's a great game, and it's a great example of of the importance of sound design when you're creating a world, especially, because I can't remember playing a game that had better sound design than that one. Yeah, that shit is terrifying. It's legit scary. Yeah. We have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. Who are you? Those Klingons? Back on the disco, uh, Stamets Prime has survived, and he is back to work. Like he has not taken uh, paid time off at this <laughs> point. He is he's walking around with suitcases uh, into the spore room, which I guess isn't totally dead. And uh, he's got a message for the crew, and the message is uh, the the mycelial network is dying, and it's the mirror universe ship's fault, and. This is 
the first of many instances in the episode, Ben, that uh, the show begins virtue signaling in a way that we've been accused of personally. (laughs) This opens up another big uh, Pandora's box here because it allows us to talk about... This is something that Star Trek does. This is something that Star Trek has always done with varying degrees of sincerity and success. How do you think this episode did with the way it talked about its own virtue, W slash R slash T, Starfleet versus Terran Empire? Well, it is super on the nose and it is super unsubtle. It's basically like Terran Empire is Trump and uh, Starfleet is like uh, environmental sustainability. Like they even use the word sustainable. I wonder if like make the empire glorious again is something that was in an original script or something that they added later. It's hard not to interpret that as what it is. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a fairly transparent description of, you know, bad guys use up all their resources in a giant wasteful gas guzzling Hummer and you know, aliens spilling over the borders and like not every decision or choice being equal, like the idea of of strong and capable people needing to rise and, you know, the weak being in a in a social or economic class below them. It's it's interesting because Giorgio is like that is she represents that frame of mind, but she's insufficiently evil for Lorca. Like Lorca Right wants to be more hard-nosed and more xenophobic and everything. Every species, every choice, every opinion is not equal. Whenever you do any kind of reading about what makes a great script or story, you always get the idea of showing versus telling as a way to convey information or character building or, or furthering a story. And when you do it this way... When you tell instead of show, there's already been a ton of showing. Like, why do you need to tell, is my point. And to me, if what you're trying to do is convey the ideals of Star Trek as a thing, as a philosophy, and your great hope is maybe even to change some hearts and minds out there and and to get them to come on board Team Star Trek philosophically, then I don't think you can do it this way. If you're already on board, you already know. And if you're broadcasting these messages to people who aren't on board, I'm not sure this is the way to do it. Like, this this feels kind of alienating in a way that is counter to what may be a secondary goal of, of a show's philosophy. I think maybe the crime of it is that it's a little bit weak as writing. I think this is the first time that the writing of an ep has really stuck out to me as a little bit clangy in the dialogue. Like, a couple of the notes are a little bit off to me. Like, there's a line that Lorca has uh, where he, he makes the speech to the capital ship, you know, as as like, hey, I'm in command now. He's more or less addressing Giorgio and Burnham in so doing. And he, and he like, he sort of says, uh, it's indecorous of me to share pillow talk. Sounds like such a look at me line of dialogue <laughs> by a screenwriter. Like that is such a uh, a ten dollar word for a two dollar character. 
<laughs> and that's not the only instance of, of stuff like that in this episode specifically. I'm not saying that the episode is broken as a as a script, but there are some parts that uh, that are a little sharp using a musical analog. There's some uh, some parts that are a little awesome, in my opinion. Um, th- there's one point where Giorgio is like, "All right, we got to go like take the fight to these asswipes," and they they have this hallway gun battle where they're like using uh, you know containment fields and guns that come out of the walls and like flashbang grenades, which I guess are especially painful in the mirror universe. Uh, the shield strength countdown yeah. that Stamets does is so fun. This was like, I, I feel like the the hallway gunfight that I've always wanted to see in Star Trek. I love how Lorca calls her Pippa <laughs> as a nickname. Like, that's such a fun nickname for a a, a terrible killer, mm-hmm. which uh, Giorgio is. Yeah, and uh, Pippa Middleton, too. I, it, yeah. Just going, like, if you're named Pippa... Chances right. are you're a terrible killer. <laughs> the weapons they use kill people in sort of like a pop of campfire. Yeah. It's like campfire gore. It's really <laughs> it's really a fun way to watch people die. Yeah. The clearest look that, that we get at this is when they open that thing to like the, the trap door to like push Stamets in, but then Lorca just has him shot instead. Yeah. which is a really funny moment um but also like i was like oh shit if if this episode hasn't yet revealed that it's really mirror universe statements on the on the disco this is fucked right right (laughs) speaking of of statements he's back on the disco doing work and uh not really grieving culber at all yeah like this is another example of that uh, just getting back to work and not being damaged by the horrible thing that has happened to you. And in Stamets's case, it's like a series of horrible things have happened to him. This show does such a great job of turning that damage into uh, into currency that uh, it felt different from other episodes in that way. I wonder if that's just because Stamets is, is kind of a weird guy and kind of emotionally disconnected to begin with. Or if it's going to, if it's like, you know, necessitated by the events that are occurring around him and that the grief of what's happened to him is going to hit him like a ton of bricks later. Yeah, I mean, his his character development has always been, much like Tilly, a little bit spectrum-y. Yeah. And, and he came right out of the gates as as that kind of scientist who did not have a lot of social graces, so... It makes sense that uh, he might be processing his grief differently than other people would. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons? Klingons? Those are Klingons? What the hell is going on on this ship? I have no idea. What is this? So we set up these kind of like parallel storylines where uh, Michael Burnham has escaped and is sneaking around the Kharan mm. and, uh, and the... Prime Universe crew on the disco are trying to figure out, are trying to like put the ship back together and figure out how they're going to get back. And at some point, Michael Burnham is like crawling around in a hatch and uses a computer that's built into the wall to broadcast to the Discovery. And she talks to Seru and 
explains to him that the Lorca that they've been working with has been an MU all along. And uh, I, I was like kind of blown away by how little like emotional impact that had on Seru. Like he's like, what? And then Stamets is like, yeah, that makes total sense. That's why we came here when we did the last jump. I love that Saru is mostly embarrassed that his ganglia didn't come out. Like, well, I would have known. <laughs> I've got these things. The crew of the disco has uh, all at once and very uh, uniformly digested the fact that they are not getting their captain back because their captain has been an evil bad guy the entire time. And they're going to, uh, they're going to like go it alone from here on in. And, um, so they have to come up with a plan that involves blowing up the giant star thing in the middle of the Charon's uh, superstructure, which is like just a, a plot point that y like you could see coming from a mile away. You see it coming from a mile away because we did, and we're not that smart, but also because... Like the idea of rebels being inside the super weapon and lowering its defenses so that it can be attacked. Uh, Very Star Warsy. Yeah, totally. Um, so so they they kind of split up, and Michael Burnham is going to go uh, talk to George Joe, and the disco crew have to figure this out. And they have this all hands meeting in engineering that is basically like, hey, like so we figured out that we can blow up the orb in the middle of the Charon and that will destroy it but we can't penetrate it without using the rest of our spores as like the tip of the weapon because of the containment field around it and uh, they kind of all have to digest the ramifications of this being that the discovery is going to be destroyed in the process of destroying uh, the Imperial ship which they all seem like pretty cool with. They're not like ignorant of the gravity of it or whatever, but they're like, okay, well, I guess, uh, yeah, we'll have to just blow our ship up to destroy these assholes. I was cool with it too. And not because I want to see these characters that I've grown to like die, but because in doing that, it would tie the thread neatly in that, you know, why isn't spore drive technology a thing in the generations that follow the time frame of the show, the idea, and I think we've talked about this before on, on this show, the idea that the discovery fails in its mission as, and is destroyed seems like a way to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think that like the sense I'm getting is that the damage to the mycelial network being something that, you know, again, the mycelial network being something that undergirds the existence of life in all universes uh, is going to be, is going to be the reason. It seems like that's where they're heading. It's a space girdle. <laughs> and then, like, Seru kind of becomes the captain in this moment, right? Like, he's like, you know, this is not going to destroy the ship. I'd be, I'd be ganglia all the way to the floor right now. <laughs> it made me really admire Seru even more because we've seen this on other Star Trek shows. The second-in-command being field-promoted to captain often gets the moment where the pip gets put on or the computer on board the ship recognizes him as captain, you know, in a, in a celebratory manner. Like you, you don't ever see Saru level up 
which I think is good. I admired that about him. It's like business as usual. It's uh, it's cool, and it's he also he kind of comes to a Kirk like approach to this. I mean, he even says that he doesn't accept a no win scenario, but it is coming from a totally different place and a totally different character. Like his he is naturally not given to that way of thinking. And he's this has been character development for him. Like he's arrived at this. Yeah, it's a good look for him. Yeah, I saw some I saw some people on Twitter. I try to I try to avoid this, but I saw some people on Twitter saying that there's been no character development at all in this season for anyone. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like I mean, Sarah's like not even in the top three of characters and he's done, they've done a ton of development with him. Yeah. I mean, Saru was avoiding everything in the first half of the season. And now uh, you've got to, you've got to be brave to be the captain of a starship. And he is, he is in a way that, that defeats his upbringing in a, in a really satisfying way. I think it's cool. You have your orders on your way. So <laughs> Michael Burnham like walks into Giorgio's uh, panic room, <laughs> which uh, seems like maybe a bad design in the in the chair on uh, the the idea that the sanctuary of the emperor is something that somebody can just saunter into. Like it's on a shopping mall map. <laughs> it's in between Lush and Macy's. <laughs> yeah, it's on the other end from the food court. If you're at the body shop, you've gone too far. They make like a an uneasy alliance, basically, that uh, they can bat back at Lorca, and that's going to be good for both of them in the long run. But uh, the way that they wind up deciding to do this is by using Giorgio as as bait, essentially. Like, Michael Burnham takes Giorgio up to the throne room and, uh, and like, you know, shoves Giorgio to the floor. Interrupting Lorca just reading Ayn Rand <laughs> out loud to the rest of the people in the, in the throne room. Yeah. Lorca's like the wealthy college kid who was just obsessed with her books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just can't wait to tell you all about them. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people in this country that are obsessed with her books and don't mature past it. Yeah. The idea of Burnham brokering a deal with Georgiou is an example of the way they both manipulate each other. Burnham manipulating Georgiou because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But Georgiou manipulating Burnham a little bit because she's her only way out of this if there is one. Giorgio knows that the that the goal here is to blow up the ship, right? So, I mean, she's playing a very long odds game at this point. And I think that she's already sort of made her peace with the idea that she's been deposed. Right. Like, it's, it's not a hard decision for her at the end to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kill as many of these guys as I can while you beam out of here. Uh, Burnham proposes to Lorca, hey... I got this Giorgio you wanted, uh, and you can have me too, but just my mind, all right? Yeah, no boning down for us. She sort of like gestures to her body, like, uh, this stays inside the breastplate. Lorca <laughs> <laughs> yeah. kind of accepts this idea, like whatever gets him close to, close to Burnham is good enough. 
And it's at this point that the disco comes out of warp and shoots at the palace ship, and that gives them cover to get into a great big Star Trek fight. Yeah, th- this was some badass shit. Like the the disco like puts a shot right through the dome in the throne room, which uh, pretty risky maneuver considering that <laughs> Burnham is in there. But yeah, uh, but yeah, great big Star Trek fight. A a ton, like a huge fight too. There's like eight or nine different people s- squaring off in this fight, and um. You know, lots of different weapons, lots of like, you know, like you can see the evilness of the mirror universe people in their fighting style. Like at one point, Landry yeah. just shoots one of her own guys to get through him to to try and shoot Burnham. And Lorca slices at Landry to get her off of off of Burnham later. Yeah. There's a really fun scene where Giorgio is grabbed from behind and then does one of those high kicks to kick Lorca in the face. Yeah. Like, facing the other way. That was so great. Like, I want to see the behind the scenes uh, of that moment. Like, yeah. was it another person? The fake and leg that they leg? swing up. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was really her. Wasn't she in Crouching Tiger? Doesn't she have, like, really serious martial arts training? She really does. Michael Burnham and Captain Giorgio, like, doing a huge fight scene together has been really satisfying every time we've gotten it. Like, they are, they are great together. They took down an entire ship full of Klingons, uh, and they're, they're, they're doing pretty good here with these Mirror Universe bad guys. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh's 55, and she is kicking all kinds of ass here. She, she makes it look easy. She's 5'4", which is another interesting fact, because... Uh, Jason Isaacs does not exactly tower over her. No, no. I think he's a. I think he's a uh, a handsome short in the in the best Hollywood tradition. Five eleven is Jason Isaacs. So oh, he's not that short. Not at all. Yeah, I mean that's a. There may be a little bit of forced perspective in, at play here. Yeah, they put her up on a apple box when she did that kick. <laughs> yeah, maybe a half apple. Maybe like a half apple and a pancake. Yeah. Uh, Squint and a finger gun out to all you production peeps out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this winds up being like a knife and sword fight toward the end, which is right. uh, just pretty intense. And um, Giorgio like gets gets knocked out in her World Series trophy, and uh, Michael Burnham like finishes off the last person she was fighting, and is like run runs up to Lorca and. Again, goes for the Vulcan neck pinch a couple of times and gets grabbed, like, just in time. Right. Which I love that that is, like, an established... Like, everybody knows you got to keep the neck away from Michael Burnham <laughs> if you're if you're doing a fist fight. I wonder if that's why Mirror Universe peeps wear the, the brass collar turtleneck. Oh, neck pinch armor? <laughs> yeah. It seems that way. Got some neck mail there. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder though, because it's like they wear it all the time. How often are they actually fish fighting with Vulcans? You know, that really looks like it would chafe too around the neck. You really got to powder that neck before you go out. <laughs> we get our, uh, I think, our fourth and final monologue here, and it's Burnham monologizing to uh, <laughs> to Lorca about who Starfleet is and who Starfleet is not. And it's a way for her to say that we would have helped you had you only asked. And uh, and I'm also not going to kill you because I'm true blue Starfleet. And then from behind, the the Voltron sword goes through 
Lorca's chest. Fun special effect. Yeah. Always a good time when you get a through and through by a sword. Yeah. And uh, our buddy Lorca gets uh, kicked down the stairs and into the orb. (laughs) There's like a total TIE fighter noise as he's dissolving, which is really weird. In the same way that I I think my Stamets theory was wishful thinking, I wonder if Jason Isaacs, if this is the last Jason Isaacs scene or... Maybe by going through the trapdoor, he becomes part of the network in a way that that we can't predict right now. I have a feeling they use a lot. They use the trapdoor for killing a lot of people. So if that were the case, there's probably hundreds of people locked in the network that we'd know of by now. I mean, I think that there's a real implication in, like, in his uh, exposition monologue to Stamets earlier on that. They Like, they use the phrase, the transporter signal swapped, which really implies that Prime Universe Lorca is in the mirror universe somewhere. Yeah, and and I hope so, because as I've said a few times before, uh, Jason Isaacs is a treasure, uh, on this show especially, and I would hate for this to be the last time that, that he's in the show. It's interesting. The experience I have with Mirror Universe... I don't like, and and it's been a long time since I've seen an episode in another one of the series about Mirror Universe, but um, I don't remember characters being so sentimental about their counterparts. You know, like like Michael Burnham really loves Giorgio, despite the fact that it's not her Giorgio, and vice versa. You know, I might be wrong about this, but it seems something like that's kind of new to. Star Trek's use of this dumb plot device. <laughs> that's a moment that's illustrated in uh, in a scene we didn't talk about, which was Lorca getting Disco on the screen and telling that other bridge crew how much respect he had for them, and uh, and how you know if he thought there was a chance that they were strong enough to survive in his universe, he'd have them all over for a party. But uh, but because they are they are feckless, cowardless. Federation people, uh, no can do. Yeah. So uh, earlier on, they come up with the plan, the disco plan, to blow up the ship and get back into Prime Universe, and it involves shooting torpedoes at at the energy sphere, going through the sphere, beaming Burnham back to the ship, and then coasting on the wave to get back to where they belong. Tillian Stamets like come up with the with the solution to the no-win scenario, which is that they can use warp and spore at the same time to protect themselves from the shockwave. Like, when the core goes, it's going to be just a total mess of mycelium all over the place. And uh, You are not going to want to use a blacklight uh, <laughs> in, this, in this area of the quadrant uh, for a long, long time. They were worried that that was going to tear her apart then. And uh, they work out a way for it not to. And it's 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 really fun. You know, like, I feel like the Heron ship design is, like, entirely about this sequence where they get to, like, shoot the, shoot the rapids and punch through the orb in the middle. And the moment they, uh, the moment they get Burnham on their sensors to beam her over is the moment where Giorgio says, hey, you got to leave me here. Uh, I'm a I'm a dead person anyway. I've, they've already seen my whole ass. Like, there's no way I'm gonna ever be emperor again. 
uh, RSVP me. And so Burnham begins to take this at face value, uh, hides in a corner, and then gets the disco on her communicator for the beam out. But before she does, uh, she runs over and, and grabs Giorgio in a bear hug mid-beam and takes her to the disco. Classic impulsive Burnham. Yeah. What? 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 What's happening? What's all this? I'm trying to save you. What is this? So they start their black alert, and they start to go through the mycelial network, and Stamus is having a real hard time holding it together because uh, they have found themselves in the Bill and Ted time travel sequence. Yeah, I mean, up until now, no one at the disco, I think, really knew what looking what it what it looked like to go through the network, and there it is, like on screen. They're they're in it. It's a lot like the Star Trek IV time travel sequence, where it gets a little mm. impressionistic for a while, and yeah. uh, and then he is in uh, either the network or his own imagination, talking to Culber, and Culber like calms him down, and he follows the music. And they wind up in their in their own universe. The spores dissipate, um, and a and a bright green dot uh, lands on Tilly's shoulder and like incorporates itself into her shoulder, which seemed really like like it was very specifically setting something up. Yeah, what do you think that's about? I don't know. Maybe she'll have a Deanna Troy baby that <laughs> develops over the entire next episode. That's how babies happen in Star Trek. <laughs> Except for it's not her belly, but her shoulder that gets really big. And everybody's like, oh, what's going on? Gross. <laughs> and they're back, but they, uh, you know, they like radio up Starfleet and nobody picks up the phone. They get the war map on screen. And uh, as the tactical computer updates, it it's like showing them the last... Uh, nine months in uh, in a rapid sequence. It turns out that they overshot their their time period by nine months, and that has been enough for the Klingons, who, despite the absence of Cole and Voke and uh, Laurel, have uh, have really uh, kicked the shit out of the Federation. I thought this was a nice payoff to the delay that Stamets has inside the network. There's a I mean, there's a good 10 to 15 seconds where he doesn't know where to go, and they keep moving forward. And I thought that was nice. Like, there's no way they could land in their space and time accurately with that kind of delay. The thing about that that transport, though, is that, like, the continuity of color was confusing to me, and that the red was associated with the decay of the network, and blue is is emblematic of, like, a healthful mycelial network and so when it turned red i thought something awful was happening something right. more awful than just a confusion of the of the spore helmsman yeah i wondered about that red it seems to have not really been motivated by anything right or if it was it's that has not been revealed but it was so subtle that it doesn't seem like it would be anything at this point yeah so the klingons won the war rsvp Lorca. rsvp the federation RSVP the Federation, uh, Mirror Universe Giorgio on Prime Universe Disco in Prime Universe. With rifle. <laughs> yeah. They can disable the rifle mid-transport, right? 
That's a 24th century technology. <laughs> if, if only she had a garret on her, she may still be armed. Yeah. Very brisk storytelling in uh, episode 13. But a full-length episode. It wasn't uh, 10 minutes shorter than the others like last episode. Right. Did you like this episode, Adam? Yeah, I really did. Um, there was, uh, as I said before, like uh, some of the dialogue was was clangy to me, uh, but the story itself I thought was very satisfying and interesting, and uh, and visually it was as stunning as the show gets, uh, especially the sequence of the disco making the big Emmelman into the ship shooting the energy sphere going through the sphere, going to warp on the wave, like that entire sequence was really theatrically breathtaking, like breathtaking on any, by any measure. Yeah, it was complicated too. Like they had yeah. to set up what that is over the course of the entire episode and then it's it's satisfying when they pay it off. Yeah, that, that part was really fun. Um, disappointed and sad that, I mean, Landry's dead again. Lork is dead again. Like, uh, big, great big body count this episode. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the biggest yet. Landry has really not had a lot of luck. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, too bad because I think Rekha Sharma is pretty great. Yeah. So maybe that's her going into, uh, into Tilly's shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Mycelial Landry. Yeah. What did, what did you think, Ben? I do really think that the writing in this episode fell apart a little bit. And it does feel like it could have been subtler and better about the points that it's trying to make. Um, right. The fact that Lorca is wearing that red hat that says, make the Empire glorious again, is just like, come on, guys. Yeah, one thing we didn't really touch on was his fate is real monologue, which is like the idea that the rich and powerful are somewhat how uh, deserving of their wealth and power. Right. Like... Fairly contemporary themes. Yeah, the the divine right of kings is real, y'all. Yeah. While that stuff was unsubtle, it's points I like to see made in my in my uh, in my fiction and in my nonfiction. Um, I missed uh, Ash Tyler in this episode. I I thought it was pretty wild that he is not even mentioned, much less in it. Yeah, I mean, a character that they've spent entire episodes developing and depicting uh, the the degrees of Ash Tyler, not really a factor this episode. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, they are getting back to Prime Universe an episode earlier than I would have expected. And to me, that is all about Ash Tyler, in a way. Like, right. there's got to be so much work to be done in resolving that because it, it feels like the most untied up thread, but maybe right. they're setting that up for like the season two arc. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe a season two that they're in production on right now from what I read. Wow. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, it's definitely not my favorite. I, I, I have the most mixed feelings about this episode, maybe of any so far. It's interesting how, uh, how writing sometimes when it's at its best is not noticeable in the way that great editing is. And and I think part of the problem in this episode is that you notice the writing so much and that can really cut both ways. In this way, I think we may be in agreement that uh, in noticing it, uh, we notice it to its detriment. Yeah. Well, do you want to uh, check and see if we have any P1s, Adam? Yeah. 
Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Ben, today's priority one message is from It Puts the Moose Lube TM on its skin. <laughs> Trademarking moose lube there. And it is for Or It Gets the Bint Wrong Again. <laughs> wow, people are starting to put message in the to and from. Which is great because the form asks names only, please. <laughs> Blatant disregarding of the rules here. I feel like the form asking for names only, please, feels like something that's our fault. <laughs> yeah, I think we've encouraged this. I feel like Maximum Fun wouldn't have had to do that if it hadn't been for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> Message goes like this. P4, Moose Lube TM. For when your knuck is stuck and your duck won't suck. <laughs> Any Canuck schmuck worth a buck will tell you. If your luck is wrong amuck, tuck your stuck knuck into Moose Lube TM. Perfect for duck, duck, gray duck. Perfect for duck, duck, gray knuck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I read that and stuck the landing almost. I feel like uh, this should have been a commercial priority one message, Ben. It clearly sells a product, and that product is Moose Lube TM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I've not used much lube in my life, but if I, if, if I had a moose, I would definitely buy this. <laughs> well, uh, our, our show is almost entirely supported by listeners, and uh, priority one messages are a great way to do that. So if you're interested in supporting the ongoing production of The Greatest Discovery, you can go to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. Uh, get on the calendar for some Season 2 action. I don't know, Ben, we haven't talked about doing a Season 2, but I think I'd like to keep doing this show. What do you think? I like this show a lot. I have fun doing it, and it feels fun in a different way from greatest gen so uh yeah i think I, I think i'm in ensure the future of the greatest discovery uh by by your support we really appreciate it yeah only two episodes left in the uh in season one so get on it what do you think of when you think of male grooming maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache maybe it's a shower a shave little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next gen skin safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra large Manscaped t shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from... What am I going to have for dinner to eating a great dinner 
in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda. I did. Um, my drunk Shimoda is a, uh, a timestamp Shimoda. It's really just all through this fight scene uh, in the throne room toward the end. Um, they do a great job. I mean, they're covering this, this scene from all different angles, and they got the camera running at all different speeds. But um, kind of to stage left of the throne uh, and, and through a lot of this fight, maybe like most noticeably around like the 32-minute mark, there's a guy in a gray jumpsuit that is is like on all fours and you know like shaking off a blow to the head or something. Uh-huh. And I guess just like in the choreography of the fight they they made a lot of decisions about this guy and deciding why he's not involved in the action because I guess they needed a couple more people chambered for toward the end. But uh this guy is on all fours for like a solid minute of this fight, just like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I love that. Like, I feel like if, if I was in a big, a big, uh, free for all fight like that and, uh, and, uh, I knew I was a red shirt in the way that this guy clearly knows he's a red shirt, I would be, uh, I would, I would really milk those moments of still being alive. <laughs> I love a background Shimoda bit. Yeah. How about yourself? Who's your drunk Shimoda? Uh, my Shimoda is going to be a a technique, a production technique, oh. which is the which is something that I call around the horn, mm-hmm. and that is uh, reaction shot salad, <laughs> which is something that we get uh, several times in this episode. 
in a way that I feel like we get two more action shots than than your doctor would typically prescribe. There's the reveal that Lorca is a Terran, and then we see every single person on the bridge look at every single other person on the bridge. Yeah, it feels like this show is starting to get a little self-conscious about the fact that we don't really know the bridge crew. Yeah, they do it there, and they also do it uh, when it is revealed that they are nine months late to the party. And when you're nine months late to a party and if you don't show up, (laughs) does it really matter? (laughs) Uh, They also get almost shot for shot another around the horn of the bridge crew. I think it's for the reason that you described. Um, More face time for everyone, especially on a show that a relative few get dialogue is, I think, the game here. Though in this episode, we do give a lot of dialogue to the robot person. Yeah. Yeah. more than ever before, who maybe we'll get to know even better in these last two episodes. But I'm just going to give the Shimoda to another bit of a clangor this episode, like things that are sticking out to me in a way that don't like this is the this is the nail head that sticks up from the board. This this sequence, and it does a couple of times. Right. What do we have coming up on the next dip? Our second from the last. The next episode is season one, episode fourteen, the war without the war within. Um, we saw a little um, little action with Sarek and Admiral Bob uh, beaming onto the bridge with guns. And mm-hmm. uh, it seems like they are going to turn to evil Giorgio for war advice because uh, because the war is going bad, but not as bad as they sort of made it seem in the actual episode today. <laughs> like, it's like, it goes from the war is lost to the Klingons have occupied 20% of Federation space in the span of like the end of the actual episode and the preview for the next episode. Yeah. I noticed that as well. So that was a little bit of a relief. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I'm looking forward to how, uh, mirror Georgiou integrates herself into this crew. I mean, this isn't the first time that an enemy captor has been, captive has been brought on board uh laurel being the other and we get to see some cutscenes of laurel in this preview as well so interesting times ahead i think we, we who we don't see is any ash tyler in the preview the uh the title of the final episode has been revealed to be will you take my hand which just doesn't sound like anything but an ash tyler episode hmm Will you take my power-gloved hand (laughs) in marriage? Yeah. Well, looking forward to that. Yeah. Can't believe two more episodes left. It's been a fun run so far. I wonder if that last one will be like a double long or or if this will be a two-episode arc that we're sailing into. Yeah. I I hope we get a a movie-length finale to the season. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I think... The one thing I've been wanting the entire season is longer episodes, so hopefully we get that. Yeah. Well, looking forward to it. Uh, had a lot of fun talking with uh, with you about it today, Adam, and uh, with that, we'll leave it to Rob from here on in. The Greatest Discovery is a MaximumFun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison, and produced and edited by Rob Schulte. Music by Adam Ragusia. Head to MaximumFun.org to support the ongoing production of this show. Please use the hashtag GreatestGen when discussing the show on Twitter. 
You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, and Adam is at CutForTime. And make sure to check out the Greatest Gen Reddit and Facebook groups if you're looking to continue the conversation even further. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.